Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Let's start out by thanking our Patreon contributors for the past week. They subscribe at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Michael, Macy, Deirdre, Casey, Katie, Ashley, Nicole, Monica, Chantel, Ella, Katie, Rachel, Wendy, Janine, Nicole, Rachel, Sophie, Rachel, Rebecca, Jennifer, Tara, Elizabeth, Emily, David, Anne, and Tara. So this week we're going to talk about another 80s sort of dominant story, uh, and that is the life and times of big blockbuster producer Don Simpson. Do you know who he is, Rachel? Uh, He's pretty well known for being the producer of blockbuster movies such as Beverly Hills Cop, Flashdance, and the movies he produced with his longtime partner, Jerry Bruckheimer, such as Top Gun, Days of Thunder, The Rock, and Bad Boys. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I just watched The Rock and Con Air uh, recently. I watched The Rock recently. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, they're the, that type of movie. These big, these are all big movies. Yeah, he doesn't have any indie merchant, merchant, merchant and ivory <laughs> movies on his slate. No, we'll get into why that is. My main source for this, uh, episode is a book called high concept by Charles Fleming. This book is excellent. I wish I could have put every word in this episode because it's so good and juicy, uh, beyond the juice. It's just a very interesting, um, insight into sort of seventies, eighties and nineties filmmaking industry. A lot of changes happened during that period. So I highly recommend it. I've already have like three other episode ideas based on the book. (laughs) (laughs) So it's very good. Uh, and I think you can download it anywhere or you can buy a hard copy. Some people do that still. I like a real book. Uh, Yeah. Sometimes I use real books, not Kindle? Uh, Usually I buy Kindle when I need it immediately. Same. Uh, But I do like getting the real thing uh, as well. Exclusive behind the scenes content (laughs) for Hollywood Hollywood crime scene. Uh, So yeah, let's get started. Don Simpson was born in Seattle, Washington on October 29th, 1943 to June, who was a housewife and Russell, who was a mechanic at Boeing. The family eventually moves to Anchorage, Alaska, while he was still a young boy, to a neighborhood called Spinard, or Spenard. Now, this was before Alaska was even a state. They moved here. It was still, um, I guess, a territory, and it was pretty uh, rough and tumble. The town they lived in, uh, Spinard, had something called a Spinard divorce, and that was when a husband shot and killed his wife. What? (laughs) Yes. 
uh, if the wife survived, it was called a trial separation. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So that's the type of town uh, he grew up in in Alaska. Now, he stood out amongst the other boys at his school who were regularly fist fighting and doing all that kind of stuff. He was kind of a chubby and shy kid, although somewhat popular. He was a good student. Um, considered to be well-mannered, soft-spoken, and he was voted best dress um, in high school because he would wear a suit and tie every day to school. Um, well, we all that know g- that that kid. <laughs> <laughs> He's also the same kid who brings the roller backpack. Absolutely. Or the briefcase. So yeah, he um, ran for class president in high school and lost something that he remained bitter about the rest of his life. Oh, come on. In a legendary petty move, he gave his classmates their comeuppance at the 20-year high school reunion when he arrived via helicopter landing on the football field, exiting with a Playboy playmate on each arm. He made his way through the crowd, greeting everyone, giving them a glimpse of his insane success before getting back on the helicopter and leaving. So he just showed up for like a 10-minute performance, basically. This is literally Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion. (laughs) When Alan Cumming arrives in a helicopter. I bet you it's based on this story. That is, look, I'm all for petty, but I think this guy deeply, deeply was wounded by not winning class president. He has severe low self-esteem issues, Rachel, and everything about his life will prove that to be true. Now, as an adult, he would... Simpson would give this darker version of his childhood. He was uh, claimed that he was taught to kill animals with his own hands at the age of seven. He described his father as unhappy and hardened, a very religious man who would slam Don into the wall as a child. He described his mother as being manipulative and narrow-minded. Now, his parents were strict Baptists, and Simpson would go to church four to five days a week. He would later jokingly call himself a straight-A Bible student. But then came Little League and sex, uh, according to him. At the same time? Yeah, according to him. Look, this guy's a pathological liar, embellisher, exaggerator. So it's hard to know what the truth is and what isn't. I'll get more into that later with him. Yeah, according to him, it's like once he got Little League and sex, then all those Bible ways were uh, He's a out bad the door. boy now. Now, he also claimed there was a period where he had a Bible in one hand and a libido in his other. Uh, as his family, I'm sorry, as he became more famous, famous, he really upped the drama of his childhood Don said after a childhood of being bombarded with the idea of original sin, that he was born filthy and dirty, um, he finally realized it was all a crock of shit just to keep people in line. And he went the opposite route, becoming, as I said, obsessed with women and getting the lifestyle he wanted. He also started stealing cars. A wild claim that he would go on to say later was that During this period of his life as a teen, he committed over 100 major crimes. He also claimed to have been arrested for four different felonies, including auto theft, burglary, and check forging. So when people he knew growing up would hear these stories later on, they were real eye rollers to them because this was not the kid that they knew growing up. up. Producer Don Steele once described him in an interview as being terminally hungry for attention, which is such an insult (laughs) to me. Like I would hate to be called that. 
that. Yeah. Um, another aspect of his story that seems straight out of a movie was that he claimed to have had this come to Jesus moment. Depending on when you heard the story from him, it was either from the toughest cop in town, a minister, or a country judge. Like giving him this warning that he would either be the smartest guy at San Quentin or have the life of his dreams. So Don, according to him, decided to straighten up and fly right, and he went off to college. That's another bunch of uh, lies. He claimed to have been elected class president his freshman year at college while on trial for a felony, but... There was no class elections for freshman president at this school he went to, and there's no record of him ever being on trial for a felony. Uh, so it's just like a blatant lie. I feel like he wouldn't be allowed to be elected class president if he was on trial for a felony, right? Like I feel like this. I think he would, wanted to put this image out that I was like a bad boy, but, but I was smart. also popular and smart. He would also claim that he like loved reading books, and he did to some extent. But it would come out later that what he actually read a lot of was comics, and I'm not downgrading comics. But he didn't want to admit that because he felt they were inferior, right? Uh, and he also felt like people would be like, oh, that's why he makes the shitty movies he made. <laughs> like, it would be, you know, that kind of thing. So he actually had the stigma. I'm not stigmatizing it. Now, um, he, like I said, there was no record of any of this. People still were like, no, he was very polite uh, and mild manner. He didn't do any of this stuff. He also invented a story about how he knew he wanted to be in the in the movies because he had gone to see a movie called The Greatest Show on Earth. Uh, when the ending of this movie happened, he was so upset at the ending, he burst into tears and called the manager over and and like demanded that they change the ending as if the theater manager could do that. Uh, but that movie came out. He if he had seen that movie in the theater, he would have been three years old. Incredible. So it would have been a complete lie unless he's the most annoying three year old <laughs> ever. Excuse me. Um, so the truth is he's just this shy nerd who dreamed of leaving his small town life and making it in Hollywood, just like many others, like a lot of people. Look, sometimes people can become very successful by having this narcissistic like uh, way of sort of like embellishing on what's, act- yes. what's actually going on in their life. Well, yeah. As I mentioned before, he is a deeply insecure man who hit his insecurity with this bravado. He had this competitive nature um, that would kill him one day, basically. Like his motto was like, if you did four lines of Coke, I'm going to do 20 lines of Coke. Like I'm going to outdo everyone on everything, including his vices, which were alcohol, drugs, and sex. Now, much like many in Hollywood did, he, you know, he wasn't the only one who manufactured his childhood. A lot of people were like, oh, I went to a boarding school. They didn't want to admit to being maybe poor or something like that. But he just did it to an excess, which is what he did with everything. In the book, it says, how much better to have been the baby-faced Nelson of Anchorage, the rebel without a pause, who haunts the library by day and commits Grand Theft Auto by night, narrowly escaping prison, turned away at the very crossroads of crime and punishment when a stern but loving older man intervenes and shows the good lad the one true way. That's a story. High concept is born. Now, if you don't know the term high, high concept as far as movie goes, It is the idea that you can pitch a movie in less than 30 seconds and everyone's going to get it. 
Much like popcorn served in the lobby, it was a tasty and a devoid of nourishment. Like it's a popcorn movie, a blockbuster. Simpson will eventually be credited with creating this type of high concept pitch, something that many critics will consider to be the monster that ate Hollywood. So the high concept, a high concept pitch is different than a high concept film. Yes. So a high concept p- pitch would be like, it's Jaws, Alien, it's Jaws set in space or like whatever. It's one of those things where you're like, it's like Die Hard, but it's on a boat or, you know, like something like that. Right. Like you don't need a plot. You don't need a plot. No one needs to know what it's about to go see it, uh, et cetera. It's just, it's like a, I mean, they can be very good, obviously, um, but it's also, oftentimes you're selling this idea before you even have a script or anything set in place. I would be interested in Jaws set in space. Well, that's what Alien was pitched as, according to this book. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was like Jaws set in space. <laughs> oh, right. But there's no shark. No, but the alien but the is the concept monster. of it. No, I get that. <laughs> Right, so you actually want a, sh- a shark That's in space? Okay, I've seen Jaws. She's like, why don't you take it even higher? Concept. I've seen Jaws <laughs> goes to space. He gets they they want to do some kind of scientific experiment in space, so they they freeze Jaws, Ooh. the shark, and then it's kind of like Jason X. Yeah, and maybe they have a water tube system <laughs> on the aircraft that he can scooch around in. You know what? Exactly. <laughs> I think you should watch Jason X this week because okay. that's kind of the same concept as like they bring Jason cryogenically frozen okay. to space and look, he thaws out and he's still alive. Wow. Um, I don't think I, I think I stopped watching at like six maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so how he got to the heights of Hollywood is also sort of a remarkable rise. After working in film marketing and public relations, one of his first big jobs was the first international erotic film festival in San Francisco. In 1975, his friend Larry Tisch, who would become a huge producer as well and had a background of like rich family, got a call to interview for a job at Paramount But he didn't want it, so he recommended they meet with Simpson instead, despite his then resume. His future partner, Jerry Bruckheimer, who he was friends with at the time, kind of got together with Larry and put him in a suit, gave him a more professional look, and kind of sent him into this job interview. But it was his personality that really sold um, himself to the head of Paramount at the time, who was Barry Diller. He got the job, basically, based on his personality, which was over the top and confident. And I think at that time, men in the industry liked other men who seemed confident and cocky and whatever. Um, So he quickly began cementing his persona as this fast, competitive, and outrageous character. He willingly admitted he wanted to be a star in his own right. He wanted to be written about like a star. He wanted to be a big name himself. His first change at Paramount was implementing a new criteria for scripts coming his way. Uh, They were to have either recommend or not recommend. No more maybes were allowed. People had to get up. (laughs) (laughs) take a stand, damn it. And that pretty much summed up how he was completely. It was like all or nothing, like this brash persona, shit or get off the pot. (laughs) (laughs) Now, one thing he also did get obsessed with was reading up on all the great moguls of Hollywood past. 
We've spoken about people like Louis B. Mayer before. He would read these books as if they were owner's manuals, like how to do the job. And we know that these men are all monsters right. <laughs> and awful. He wanted to be at that level. He wanted to be a legendary film producer. In 1978, he was one of Hollywood's baby moguls. They were considered the new power elite by writer Maureen Orth. She claimed they would set the tone for how movies were done in the 80s. And as far as Simpson goes, she was right. He's the only one of that group who really went on to major things. I think they were all kind of successful, but not like him. She was impressed with his work ethic, which was only matched by his play ethic. This is a guy who regularly would like drink and do lines in big meetings and interviews like in his office (laughs) he'd like lay out lines of cocaine during meetings he's truly living the life that roy radin wished he had he's roy radin makes a brief appearance in this book of course he does it's only a few paragraphs and it's related to robert evans obviously (laughs) it's like the gang's all here (laughs) he also gained a rep as being a chronic exaggerator, as I mentioned earlier. He literally built everything up and lied about everything. Nothing was too small for him to lie about. Uh, He, at the time, Jeffrey Katzenberg was his assistant at Paramount, and he would refer to, to things as the Don Simpson discount factor, which was a way to tone down whatever exaggeration. Like you always had to tone things down 25 to 80% depending on his mood that day. And that was like an ongoing joke with people who had to deal with him. One guy who I think was in the movie Beverly Hills Cop, I think his name was Pesci, Pesci, P-E-S-C-E, Pesci, but not like not Pesci. Like, maybe it's Pesci. Maybe it's Pesci. He said that Don had like the most expensive set of gold golf clubs in his office, but he never saw him ever play golf. And Don claimed that he shot in the seventies, which this guy was like, that's like someone who plays golf every day. And I never saw him on the course. So it was like, he just had these golf clubs to look like a golfer and then also lied about how good he was, even though he probably never played. Look, we it's all, like insane stuff. We all know a guy like this yeah. or a, or a woman like this who cannot help themselves. They have to, they lie about everything. It's not even, they don't even realize they're lying. It is a compulsion. Yeah, that's him. A lot of people would speculate because he really is so insecure, especially about his looks. They think a lot of this is triggered from having a younger brother who was hotter, taller, and like a real ladies man. Uh, And Don, his looks, uh, how he looked was something he struggled with his whole life. Like he had issues now, another change happening in Hollywood at time at the time was being undertaken by his bosses at Paramount, Barry Diller and Michael Eisner. Both of these men had backgrounds in TV, so they were coming with a different perspective uh, into the movie industry, and they really wanted to take power away from the directors who had kind of dominated in the 60s and 70s, and they wanted to put that power back into the hands of the producers. At the same time, this is the summer of 1975, this is often considered to be a pivotal moment in movie history. That is the summer when Jaws was released, birthing the idea of the summer blockbuster, a movie that's so big it would basically make a studio solvent on its profits alone. Like you had one of these per year and you were kind of solid. Now, after Jaws came out, it was what every studio at that point wanted, this event movie. 
Uh, and that's what I'm talking about when I say high concept. These, like, like I said, the aliens, or the other example this guy gave is uh, Under Siege, that movie with uh, Steven Seagal, which mm-hmm. was Die Hard on a Boat. Like right. things you could sell, and it's like a known entity that everyone's going to want to see. But in the mid uh, 70s, so this is the mid 70s, and every studio wants this next Jaws. Paramount got their blockbuster when they picked up a movie that Simpson actually thought was a turkey called Saturday Night Fever. Now, usually his instincts were really impressive, um, so he did move up fast despite him not thinking that this movie would do well. By 1977, he's named vice president of production and president in 1981, but he inherited a real shit slate of films, including a movie called White Dog, which was a film about a relationship between a peaceful woman and a racist dog. Wait, what? (laughs) What? Have you ever heard of this movie? I have not heard of this movie, and I don't know if it was made. I I did mean to check if it was ever made, even if a, a different title. But yeah, I was like... I was like record scratch. <laughs> I was like, what the hell is this movie? What the fuck? Now Eisner was like, he's like, this white dog is our Jaws. <laughs> so it's, I have no idea. It's, it's like Jaws in suburbia. Yeah. And the, and the, the creature is a race. Right. Like I have no idea. I'm, I hope this movie was never made cause it sounds like it would not have aged well. Um, there was also a strike looming. So they really wanted to get a picture sort of like in production and time to kind of avoid that. He wanted to do a romantic movie called An Officer and a Gentleman. Now, Eisner agreed to allow Simpson to proceed with both movies on his slate, but it's really uh, Officer and a Gentleman is the one we know. (laughs) We don't know White Dog. No. Uh, Some other movies he was sort of had his hands in at the time were sequels to Grease and Friday the 13th and Airplane. So he was kind of involved in all of those as well. He also became obsessed with filming or producing Godfather 3. But obviously that would happen many years later. Uh, So now his focus is on Officer and a Gentleman. Initially they wanted John Travolta, but by this point he was too expensive. So they went with Richard Gere. Next they wanted to cast Deborah Winger, who had just come off the film with John Travolta, Urban Cowboy. And Don says this to her during her her audition or her read, he says that they love her, but they were only concerned that she wasn't fuckable enough <gasps> to her face. What? Yes. Now, by the way, this is how Paramount often would cast their female leads a, a lot of times. When casting Flashdance, they had it narrowed down between Jennifer Beals, Demi Moore, and a model. They showed they Michael Eisner couldn't decide who to cast, so he showed the screen test of the women to Teamsters and crew members and had them pick who they wanted to fuck the most, and that's how <gasps> Beals got the part. Whoa! Isn't that fucking fucked up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? It's so fucked up. So Deborah Winger does eventually get the part. She actually has an affair with director Taylor Hackford, which causes a lot of problems on the set because she starts showing up late and he kind of lets it slide. Uh, she sort of cemented her relation, her reputation for being difficult on this film. I really like her. I think she's like a great actress. He Hackford also had the perfect song ready to go. He had gotten this song recorded called Up Where We Belong. The only problem was Simpson fucking hated it, and he refused to have that song in the movie. He said he had a better song by Neil Diamond that he had written <laughs> for, the film, for the film. Hackford refused 
to budge on this. As we all know, this song became a massive fucking hit and probably made the movie a hit. It's the most famous scene. Yeah. So, but for the rest of his life, Simpson would never take the L. He would insist the song was shit and should have never been a hit. <laughs> like it's not it's not his fault it happened. He's right even though it what happened was against what he thought. Right. Now, despite his success and the fact that he was legitimately good at his job, his drug use was really becoming out of control. So there was a corporate retreat for Paramount in Palm Springs. One source remembered that it began badly. Simpson and Katzenberg agreed to race their matching black Porsches to the desert. Simpson was desperate to win and was pulled over by highway patrol. He got ticketed for excessive speed, so Katzenberg was able to pass him and get to the hotel first. An hour later, Simpson had still not shown up for this big meeting. There's 18 Paramount executives, including Diller and Eisner, his bosses. They're all in suits and jackets waiting for Simpson to show up. He still doesn't show. Katzenberg kind of explains what happened. Um, He's like, oh, I'm sure he'll be here shortly. Minutes later, Don Simpson appears wearing jeans and a T-shirt that says Maui Wow. (laughs) (laughs) He comes through the kitchen door carrying a sloppy cheeseburger, sits in one of the empty chairs with his mouth full of food and said, sorry, I'm late, but I was fucking hungry and had to eat. (laughs) (laughs) So someone who was at the meeting said that Diller's face turned like nine shades of crimson. He was fucking furious at this. Like he was not amused at all. That weekend in Palm Springs, he continued to do behavior that was sort of, you know, not really proper in front of all these coworkers, like pulling his girlfriend's bathing suit down at the pool in front of like coworkers, just being a naughty boy through and through. Less um, by this point, I also he had been in three car wrecks under the influence of drug and alcohol. He had been sent to rehab twice already at his during his time at, at Paramount. The feeling was he'd been warned a bunch, and if it happened again, uh, there was no choice they would have to make but but to fire him. And that did happen at another um, Paramount like retreat or meeting with all these. I think it was in the private executive dining room. He passed out and fell into his soup in, in front of Barry Dillard. <laughs> so he Wait was like, minute. hi. And he like fell asleep and his face literally went into a bowl of soup. Do we know what kind of soup it was? No. I'm hoping it's like peas, like green pea soup or something. I pictured like Manhattan clam chowder. Oh, I mean, I'm guessing it wasn't too hot, but it had maybe it had been sitting there. So he had also recently fallen asleep on the dais at like a show West panel for officer and a gentleman. Um, so... Barry Diller had had enough by 1983 and fired him. The confidence on this guy is off the charts. I love him showing up in the Maui Waui shirt. I too. <laughs> and I was like, honestly, like I would show, it's like the next level showing up late to a meeting with a coffee that you stopped and got at Starbucks. You like, get a cheeseburger. Absolutely. A sloppy cheeseburger and just eating it in the meeting. Mm-hmm. It's, it's crazy. So according to Don Steele, he was obviously upset about being fired. Like he didn't want, he wanted this life. She said, Don went into a very deep depression at this point. 
I had numbers of meetings with him and Joe Esterhaus on the call box because I didn't, uh, I couldn't get him to come out of his house. So even then, it was a pattern for Don to hide. And he never forgave Diller for firing him. More than a decade later, drinking and under the influence, he said to an acquaintance, they fired me on a fucking morals charge. They had executives buggering boys in the back seats of their Porsches and they fired me on a fucking morals charge. I want to know more about the buggering. <laughs> What's going on there? Yeah, that seems like a uh, crazy illegal. detail. Yeah. So now, despite that he got fired, he basically got this consolation prize. He was set up with a production office and a deal on the Paramount lot. So they basically kind of wanted him out of the corporate wing of the company. Like they didn't want him to be the face of Paramount, but they still wanted him to produce movies for them. Soon after he got this, he forged the partnership with fellow producer and old friend Jerry Bruckheimer. They were a great match. Don Simpson was the wild one with the big ideas. Bruckheimer was the disciplined one who made Simpson's ideas happen. They, at this point, his ideas basically started amounting to like, here's a movie topic, topic, but it's the rock and roll version. <laughs> now, people really consider him to be the first producer to get the value of MTV influence in the culture. He used that with his movies. He always had hit songs and soundtracks for all of his movies. And then these hit songs would be videos on MTV, basically marketing all of his movies, which was a very successful setup for his high concept uh, films. And if you think about those movies, it's like Highway to the Danger Zone. There was a video on MTV like that was clips of the movies. It was all kind of just like promotional hand-in-hand hand for both paved, of them. He paved the way for Seal's Kiss from a Rose. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, now, their first movie together, as I mentioned, was Flashdance. Everyone... Uh, Basically, this movie had been around the Paramount lot for a long time. It went through numerous revisions. Everyone kind of threw it his way, basically hoping that he'd fail and they could kind of get rid of him forever. The movie production is detailed in the book, and it's very interesting, all the back and forth. I'm not going to get too much into these productions, but I'm hoping we'll do episodes on them at some point. Uh, my fave tidbit is the fact that director Adrian Lin decided that the lead character, Alex, needed a backstory that had her um, being molested as a child. He wanted to give the film some gravitas, and that was his choice. The screenwriter of the movie, Joe Esterhaus, was horrified, so they kind of went back and forth about this choice. Ultimately, they did not go for that storyline. Um, but there was one problem, for the powers that be at least. The movie tested through the roof and was Paramount's biggest or second biggest film of the year, and it had a very popular soundtrack as well. We all remember She's a Maniac. Yeah. <laughs> the best review, however, his mom sent him a Bible after seeing the movie, begging him to read it so he never had to make a movie like Flashdance again. That's a pretty good review. I think so. So let's take a break and we'll be back with more. Okay. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I've had a really stressful year with work and family stuff, and I know I'm not alone when I say I tend to push that stress down in order to get what I need done, done, and that only makes things worse. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. In the past, therapy has helped me navigate many situations from helping me to set boundaries to just becoming the best version of myself. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I love that it's entirely online, so it's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash HCS today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash HCS. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Okay, so next up for the team was a project that Dawn had been trying to get made since the late 70s, a movie called Beverly Hills Cop. They brought in a new screenwriter with the directive of making the film funnier. I think it was not that funny to begin with. They had lined up for the lead character of Axel Foley, Mickey Rourke, initially. He ditched it to do another movie. Then they brought Sylvester Stallone in temporarily. But he eventually went with Eddie Murphy, and obviously the movie goes on to be a massive hit. And it spawned the next popular genre of like film, action comedy. Like he really is responsible for getting that sort of genre off the the ground. And like you cannot watch an action movie now that it doesn't have comedic elements. They it, all have it. It's true. And sometimes they have too much of it. I agree. Like I've seen ones where I'm like, can can everything not be a quip? Right. Like, can we go like 10 minutes without a fucking joke? Like, it's, it can be too much, um, but obviously it's a very popular um, genre. Now, despite his constant success, he still is a person that people are kind of like, this guy is fucked up. Like, the only thing that is keeping him going is the fact that he keeps making successful music, movies. And that's all that really matters in Hollywood at this point. Right. Like, are they making money for us? Uh, around this time, as if being a massive 
coke addict isn't enough, he also gets obsessed with guns. Uh That's a combination no one wants to be around. (laughs) Uh, People would, you know, their stories started spreading about how he would always bring out guns. He'd put them on the table during meetings. He had an Uzi. Writers were sometimes warned to wear bulletproof vests when they went to a meeting with him. Jesus. Uh, I mean, he never did anything, but it was definitely something he enjoyed using to be like a power play with people. Um, but yeah. Look, maybe not all of us know this guy, but I know this guy. <laughs> look, look, I know a low budget version of this guy. <laughs> and no one wants to be around this guy because he's very sweaty and he's very nervous. And you, you know something's going to go bad one day. Look, I've shot guns into a creek with this guy and that guy was my dad. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. Oh no, it's a frightening combination it's very sweaty and very frantic. Yes. And the last thing you want to see in someone's hand is a gun when they're in that state. Yes. So as I mentioned, the producing team is riding high, but obviously in Hollywood, you're always looking for your next big success. Bruckheimer is in the office with Simpson one day. He is reading an article about fighter jets in California magazine and immediately, immediately thinks Star Wars on Earth. <laughs> What? <laughs> That's how these people think. Star Wars on Earth. That was his um, his like quick pitch. They buy the rights to the article and they hire a writer to write the screenplay for Top Gun. Uh, so after another sort of rough pre-production, they finally hire commercial director Tony Scott for his first movie directing job. Don's other coup was that he landed young star Tom Cruise for the lead role in this movie, he offered him a huge salary as well as allowing him to have input on the script. Now, Paramount needed a hit and Bruckheimer and Simpson were being touted as the star producers in the media as well. They were being featured on covers of magazines with like titles like the kings of production or producer kings. And they lived up to the hype of all of this by having matching Ferraris. They had houses done by the same architect. They had identical twin secretaries. Come on. They dressed in similar clothing. They wore black. That was their signature color. Simpson would wear black Levi 501 jeans only before their first wash and then throw them away. Come on. Uh, he also, These guys are so corny. No, but this is like that period. Yes. It sucks ass. Uh, he also was like, that's where he became obsessed with getting really tan. Like he is very tan sometimes throughout his life. Now he claims that he never underwent plastic surgery procedures, but it's reported that he went through about 10 different plastic surgeries between 1988 and 1994. Now, with all of the hype surrounding them, uh, they really needed Top Gun to not just be a success, but a blockbuster. The filming period was wild, another wild production we can hopefully talk about one day. Bruckheimer basically held it together as Don was once again trying to kick his cocaine habit and like, instead of kicking it, actually went harder. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I do. Yeah. So Tony Scott is wild as well at this time. He begins this thing that he calls boobs in Bulgari, which is when he buys women he thinks is nice boob jobs and then showers them with jewels so he can see them on the cleavage. I'm sorry. Wait, he called it boobs in Bulgari? Bulgari, yeah. That is so tacky. Yeah. Every night after film, filming was like a rap party. Every night, people were swimming naked in the pool, including star Kelly McGillis. There is one night where people were being pulled into the 
pool, like, and thrown into the pool, like in a wild party. And this story really sums up the producing bear pair to a T. Bruckheimer agreed to be thrown in the pool, but he said, please, first, let me take off my expensive cowboy boots. And it took five men, like 20 minutes of fighting to throw Don Simpson into the pool. And once he was thrown into the pool, he immediately sunk to the bottom because he didn't know how to swim and was too embarrassed to tell anyone. Oh, wow. (laughs) So people had to save him. But it's like you could have stopped the whole thing by just admitting you didn't know how to swim. You fucking crazy. Like, that's idiotic. So, however, one place he couldn't shut up in his ongoing publicity campaign, he told everything. Like, he couldn't tell them he didn't know how to swim, but any other interview, he was, like, balls out, like, telling them everything. He told a reporter that Jeffrey Katzenberg had twins because he only wanted to fuck his wife once, which is, like, Katzenberg was a big player in Hollywood at that point. And as we know, he gets even bigger. Yeah. He spoke about how he saw women as only transactional. He said he liked to flash his gold card to get women who were trashy like him. So he's just admitting this in the press? Yeah. He's, like, he likes this reputation that he has uh, to this bad boy. There's nothing worse than a try-hard bad boy. Uh, He says... He talks about Steven Spielberg in an interview. He says, I'm surprised for a smart Jew. He's as white bread as he is. Shut up. I know. He says in another interview, any person who suggested David Lynch for Dune should have every part of their anatomy examined. So he's really critical of peers. Uh, He doesn't care. This is the kind of person who thinks they're really quirky, but they're just an asshole. (laughs) What was that noise? That sounded like it was from outside. Yeah. It sounded like a garbage can it sounded like a raccoon did it. Okay, that's exciting. Like a, but it, I don't have metal garbage cans. Yeah, no one does. <laughs> I'm not deleting this. Okay. okay. So other things he did that pissed off his peers, he claimed he discovered Michael Mann. He launched Deborah Winger's career. He also claimed that he created Beverly Hills Cop, which Michael Eisner was pissed about because I think he actually thinks he created it. A really unflattering portrait eventually comes out in Esquire magazine and it devastates him because he had been on this publicity campaign thinking he was becoming this big star and it just blew up in his face because he came off like an absolute asshole. Luckily, Top Top Gun came out and uh, took the heat off of this because it was a huge blockbuster hit instantly. In 1985, Simpson meets Alex Adams, a.k.a. Madam Alex, who resided near him in a mansion she dubbed Casa Pussy. I know all about Madam Alex. I know. We talked about her and Heidi Fleiss. Yes, we did. Okay, so Simpson was a friend and a client. (laughs) He referred to himself as Beverly Hills Cock. Don didn't date, he fucked. I think that was a quote from Madam Alex. (laughs) Wow. He also was famous for saying, I think Charlie Sheen also says this, I don't pay them to come, I pay them to leave. Uh, although he did mostly hire professionals, he sometimes would do casting, casting couch type things. One actress said that after she read for him, he said, okay, great. Now do you want to do Coke first or do you just want to fuck me? And she's like, uh, no. Um, producer Joel Silver also thought this, his obsession with sex and having sex workers was another sign of his insecurity. He said, Don was your typical smart, overweight, nerdy kid in high school. He never got over that. It's the real revenge of the nerds. Most of these guys were short, fat, ugly kids who couldn't get laid in high school. Now they're in control and they're going to make everyone in the world pay for what the world did to them. 
That still happens today. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, around this time, Madam Alex began to have some competition uh, in that arena. um, And that person was Heidi Fleiss, who kind of was, was Madam Alex like her mentor in some ways? So she was kind of started, she broke from Madam Alex and was rapidly taking over the Hollywood Madam scene. And like Madam Alex before her, she became good friends with her great client, Don Simpson. They would eventually have a falling out because Dawn began to get more and more violent with her girls. She would stop sending them to him, which enraged him, causing him to blame fellow client Robert Evans. For some reason, he thought that Evans was behind this thing, and he would threaten to kill both of them. Obviously, a cocaine-induced rage is happening here. Because he got it in his mind that Robert Evans was trying to screw him. Because they went to all the same sex workers. Yeah. He's a big... Robert Evans was also in that scene. Now, in the 90s, a book titled You'll Never Make Love in This Town Again, which was anonymous stories from sex sex workers during this period, dishing on their celeb clients, had a chapter on Simpson that is one of the most famous stories about him. And I think one that people usually know if they know nothing else. Did you read this book? Mm -mm. Did you? I did. I read it when it came out or shortly after it came out. It's very juicy and it's not all negative things. Like I remember it's a very positive chapter on John Ritter, (laughs) 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 which you were kind of like, yes, he is a good client. And I'm sure he's a very nice man. I I would... We would think that there would only be good stories about John Ritter. Yes. So, I mean, it's all the usual suspects are there. Jack Nicholson, Charlie Sheen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, I think it's separated in chapters. Each chapter is like a, one of the women, uh, their anonymous name. So this woman is named Tiffany. Uh, in the story, she comments on, I think, liking him initially, uh, thinking that he had a sexy, flat stomach. He would get very thin throughout his life, but kind of fluctuate a lot. Um, but it started to get a little weird for her because he really started getting violent with um, these sex workers. Now, it's obviously, there is a market for that. Some women are BDSM sex workers, and it's like all part of what they're being paid for. But even with them that there are rules of course and he just as you might expect was brutal he liked getting young sex workers who weren't very experienced and maybe new to town uh so kind of more innocent and kind of put them through these ringers that they did not like like he liked ruining their innocence uh so very like sick stuff Tiffany tells this story that um, she was in a situation where another girl was involved. There was a dominatrix prostitute, that's what she said, uh, named Patricia Colombo, who forced this younger girl to lean over the toilet. With her head dunked in the water, the girl was told to drink. At the same time, the dominatrix had like a 12-inch strap-on on and was fucking the girl with it. Um, and Don Simpson was pissing in the toilet while the girl's head was in the toilet, uh, drinking. So obviously that's like, that could be something people enjoy all around, (laughs) but I don't think this girl was like in on it. And that's why Heidi Fleiss eventually, Heidi Fleiss eventually banned him from seeing her girls. He was crossing boundaries. He was crossing boundaries and there was no safe words or, uh, protocols in place so these women could uh, protect themselves. And he probably got off on that. Absolutely. Now, 
I'm not going to get into this whole story, but I've just never heard of this talent. Another um, time with Patricia Colombo and a, a stripper named Michelle, they came in and Michelle demonstrated her ability to tie her vaginal lips into a knot. What? And Simpson was not impressed. How long were they? <laughs> I don't know, but I just like, imagine doing that for someone. And they're, they're not, not impressed. impressed. I would, just like my heart sunk. I would kick them in the face. I'd be like, I'd probably have to ask going forward. Is that something you'd be into? <laughs> like, I have no idea. He does eventually now hire a full-time lady who does seem to be more into a BDSM lifestyle. Her name is Bonnie Bradigan, who basically became his, her words, professional sex slave. Like she was, um, that to him, but she, she told a story. She like talks about all their sex acts. I'm not going to get into that, their role play and stuff like that, but she's definitely a participant in, but she said that the coverage of Simpson's sex life became very like parodied within the Hollywood community. Everyone knew about it and made jokes about it. So much so that it was even in Spy Magazine, which was like an old comedy parody magazine. And she said in the parody, it said there was like a, his assistant is answering the phone in his office. The assistant says, Mr. Simpson, your slut is on line three. <laughs> and she, this woman, Bonnie Bradigan says, that was me. I was the slut on line three. <laughs> love that. Uh, I was like, I'd be proud of that too. That's me. I'm the slut on line three. Love it. Uh, I mean, I don't love what he did, but I like that she owns like the moment. The only thing Simpson loved more than sex workers though was still cocaine. Like he never, he never got off that ride. Like he loved cocaine till the end. In 1990, Simpson and Bruckheimer signed a five-year deal with Paramount worth a reported $300 million. Um, he also still had fantasies of being a director at this time, but obviously that's never going to come to fruition because there's no way he could handle the responsibility of directing a film. The only reason he could get away with the production was because Bruckheimer really picked up the slack for him on that end. He also, by this point, pretty much had his own Coke dealer on call, he had relationships with a bunch of them, but there was this one dealer to the stars named J.R. who supplied to all of Young Hollywood, River Phoenix, Charlie Sheen, Robert Downey Jr., um, as well as Old Hollywood, Jack Nicholson, Robert Evans. Um, but his number one client was Don Simpson. Now, this is not related to Don Simpson, but I have to tell you this story that J.R. tells in the book. He so in the book, he tells a story that in 1991, he's outside a club called the Coconut Teaser, where Ice-T was performing. I'm sorry, just love all these details. He makes some sales. He leaves the club uh, to his limousine, which is waiting outside. A young woman is sitting inside the limousine. Her name is Faye Resnick. Now, wow. <laughs> they share a few lines of Coke. Then Resnick asks him to give her a gram. He said, how about a blow for that blow? She seems shocked and says... I'm not a prostitute. JR answered, that's a gram and that's the deal. He remembered later, the next thing you know, she's got a gram and I'm getting a blowjob in the limo. Now, that's not the end of his connection to the OJ Simpson case. On the night of June 12, 1994, JR said he was in his motel room watching basketball playoffs. At about 8.30, his pager buzzed. JR claims he packed a bindle and walked to Burger King. He arrived at 8.45 and found O.J. Simpson's Bentley in the parking lot with Cato Kalen driving. O.J. was in the passenger seat. J.R. found Kalen was very sketched out, nervous, and jumpy. He opened the back door, 
gave Cato gave him a hundred dollar bill and JR passed him the gram of speed. Kalen immediately removed a mirror from his pocket, cut lines and snorted it, passed the mirror to OJ, who shot a nervous glance and then said, what the fuck, Cato? Cato laughed and said, JR, why don't you go get us some burgers? So JR leaves the two men in the parking lot to do drugs privately and comes back 10 minutes later. Simpson's wiping his eyes and nose on a handkerchief and he gives them the bag of hamburgers and leaves. Now, the following morning, he hears about the murders on the news. So... I don't know if you remember from this case, the alternate theory was that drug dealers that were friends with Faye Resnick were actually the ones who killed Nicole and Ron and some kind of drug-related thing. This is the guy who was like a suspect, like loosely in the case, um, because he had that connection to Faye Resnick, and he sold drugs to all these people. And he actually saw OJ that night and he panicked and left town because he's like, my fingerprints are in that Bentley right? Uh, and all of this kind of stuff. I mean, obviously he was cleared. I just thought that was a wild connection. Uh, so back to the other Simpson, <laughs> Don. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? So Simpson's ego is out of control by this point. I mean, there's nothing worse than a guy fucking up in every way and still succeeding. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> this guy is one of the top falling up stories it's I've unbelievable ever heard. now but he is out of control and this will really be illustrated during his next production and that is um this movie days of thunder starring tom cruise he is convinced that this is going to be his next blockbuster but the production once again is a shit show they go $30 million over budget which is almost double what it was originally budgeted for Um, he also, this is the movie he attempts to finally fulfill his dream of being a movie star. He writes a part for himself in the movie. I think it's like an Italian race car driver. So he gives himself an accent? Yes. Well, it get well, it's an Italian race car driver. The movie, he never is in the movie really. He gets into shape, which includes working out nonstop. He gets cheek and chin implants. He makes custom racing uniforms, but his role is eventually cut because he sucks as an actor and everything he's in is unusable. Like that's how bad he is. Even Tom Cruise is like, we can't use that. And he sees the dailies at some point and it's like, even he's like, yeah, that's embarrassing. He does have like one line in the movie, but it's like in the background, like, good job. Like one of those, like one line in the right. in the background kind of thing, but his act, bad acting is only a drop in the bucket. Like everything about this production is a stinker. There's also like this would be a great episode, and there's a documentary on the making of this movie. I didn't get a chance to watch it, but there's also a heavy Scientology influence on the set at this point. Really? Yes. Wasn't Nicole Kidman in this movie? Yes. But this is like when Scientology really wanted her out. Do you know, they didn't want her in his life. Uh, They didn't like that relationship. And I think David Miscavige was like on production every day. He was there every day. Don Simpson actually throws him out off set at some point because he keeps insisting that the production pay for this expensive Scientology patented sound recording device and they don't want to use it. So he's like, you got to use this because obviously it would be a huge moneymaker for Scientology. Um, so he eventually throws David Miscavige off set. Um, I thought this was the movie that Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman met on. They may have met on it, or maybe they met before. Or maybe they started dating. Yeah, but this. I think Scientologists didn't want 
them together because she was like not Scientology. Right. And her father is like a very famous psychologist in Australia. Right. right. So they probably were monitoring the situation. Uh, I'm not sure exactly, but yeah, you might be right. This is before they were married, maybe. Okay. Uh, anyway. This movie is about auto racing. If you don't know, the film gets mixed reviews and grosses um, pretty well, but because it was so over budget, it didn't make a ton of money. Like it is not in the same level of um, Top Gun, which had a way smaller budget and earned a ton of money. Um, so Paramount is pissed. They blame like the the production. Bruckheimer and Simpson blame Paramount for not like you know, for rushing the production and the release and not marketing it properly. And Paramount blames them for overspending. They part ways shortly after this film comes out. Um, They quickly realize that one perceived failure makes you lose a lot of your luster very quickly in Hollywood. And they're no longer like this visionary producing pair. Now everyone's kind of like placing blame on Simpson's excesses and saying Bruckheimer has an inability to rein him in. So they're getting more flack for their uh, way of doing things. Despite that, in 1991, the two sign on with Disney. Now, that might seem like a very unusual place for them to go. At the time, Jeffrey Katzenberg is the president of Disney. Obviously, he had this relationship with Simpson, and they are still very successful. Disney is a much more conservative operation, and they are fucking tight financially. Like They don't put up with this bullshit that Paramount let them get away with. Don is still living large despite this sort of setback. Like Reading about this book, the 90s was this fucking lifestyles of the rich and famous insane excess all around every celebrity had private jets they had these insane upgrades to their real estate like secret staircases to like whatever they wanted money was no object uh he even opens up a celebrity restaurant called the buffalo club now it's still in existence in santa monica what so we can uh, read the menu on the after show okay we'll look it up yeah it's been there for 25 years now i guess So, um, as I mentioned, he's even more competitive now than he ever was. I mentioned before, like the two lines, I'm going to do 10 lines, motherfucker. If you do a shot of tequila, he'll guzzle half a bottle. He takes these trips to the Grand Canyon several times with Jeffrey Katzenberg and Tony Danza. And he has them do these races from the rim of the canyon to its base, which is a two mile distance. And he... (laughs) <laughs> like he he like will sit until they catch up and then run once they meet him he always wins because he's so fucking competitive Danza who is also competitive actually overheats during one of the races and has to be like airlifted to the hospital because he's dehydrated like this stuff is just like for what purpose men I'm sorry. <laughs> men please stop racing on the grand canyon and getting dehydrated wait to are, prove a point are they racing in their cars no they're running it they're like running it down this canyon i don't even know i've never been to the grand canyon with no water but it's 2 miles and i'm sure it's all downhill which is actually hard to run yeah uh so yeah their first film for disney is the ref I actually really liked that movie, but it was a flop. Did you ever see The Ref? <laughs> it's with Judy Davis. Uh, I guess it's with Kevin Spacey, so no one can watch it now. <laughs> Sorry. Part of the problem, like I mentioned earlier, is Jeffrey Katzenberg is, he's kind of declared the 
blockbuster film being over at this point. So yeah, he's really right. he's really reining in budgets. I think it's more of a financial thing. He doesn't want to blow all these budgets. So Bruckheimer and Simpson keep coming to him with ideas that they want to produce, and he rejects a lot of them. Projects that end up being successful, like Apollo 13, Presumed Innocent, Disclosure. I like love that kind Disclosure. Of, yeah, me too. So he turns them down. Um, even their setup at the studio is not the extravagance they're used to. <laughs> they're, they're used to. Um, at some point, Simpson, uh, in his executive facility, expenses the company for a bathroom he had made in Dark Marble. <laughs> so Eisner gets the bill and he's like, Jesus, Don, now everybody at the company wants their own bathroom. <laughs> and Simpson says to him, Michael, you just don't understand about bodily functions. <laughs> No idea what that means. Wait, does that mean he has to shit in a black marble bathroom? I think he must have to have privacy to shit. But why does it have to be black marble? Well, that's just him, probably, right? <laughs> it's fancy. I'm guessing he just wants his own fancy bathroom for privacy. Oh, this is in the company. Yes. This isn't for his house. No, 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 no. This is in the company. So he wants his own bathroom at the company. And it's black marble. Yes. So maybe he could have gotten his own bathroom. Did it, did it have to be black marble? You know what? <laughs> Take a shit at home. Also, it's the 90s. We're not doing black marble. No, anymore. that's that's very 80s. So 1995 is another year that brings them back to success. They have uh, Dangerous Minds, Crimson Tide, and Bad Boys. Now, Bad Boys is a particularly good victory for him. It's another movie he had been working on getting together for a long time. This was initially supposed to be a John Lovitz, Dana Carvey movie. No way. Yes. Now, it goes through so many changes. Eventually, he has this idea to kind of do what he did with Beverly Hills Cop, make it more of a comedy and cast comic black actors in the lead roles instead of whatever these white comics that they were going to go with. And obviously, it's a huge success. Um, 1995 ends up being his biggest year, like blockbuster-wise. He has so many huge movies that year, but it will also be his last year. Uh, In 1994 interview with the New York Times, Simpson tries to downplay his reputation, claiming that while he has done drugs in the past, he has stopped. He claims that his only addiction at the time was to food. According to screenwriter James Toback, who was a longtime friend of Simpson's, So this is all a lie. Simpson is constantly lying in the press. His drug use never stops. And in addition to Toback, David Geffen, Jeffrey Katzenberg also try to stage interventions to get Simpson to go to rehab. None of them work. He refuses to enter a traditional rehab facility. In 1995, he employs a man named Dr. Stephen Ammerman to help him with his addiction. Now, Ammerman had a history of drug abuse himself. He believed that in order for Simpson to quit drugs, he had to use other drugs to combat the painful withdrawal symptoms. Ammerman designed what he called a dangerously unorthodox detox program, which included several medications, including morphine, for Simpson to take at home. On October 15th, 1995, a body was found in the shower of the pool house of Simpson's estate. That man was Dr. Ammerman, who had died of an accidental overdose of cocaine, Valium, venlafaxine, and morphine. Now, He's found in this pool house by Simpson's maid in this Bel Air home. Paramedics arrive uh, and they discover his body is dead. Um, he has a shitload of pills in his system, as I mentioned earlier. He has a pocket of Valium, I'm sorry, a vial of Valium in his pocket that was descri- 
prescribed by him to a name Dan Wilson. No one knows who that guy is. So it's basically a fake name. He's making fake prescriptions. Police find more prescription drugs on his premises. Um, I mean, it's just like everything you can think of. Xanax, Demerol, Valium. There's alcohol. There's GHB. Um, The autopsy also revealed that he had taken cocaine, morphine, diazepam, antidepressants. Like he just had it all. This is the guy that's trying to get Don yes. Simpson sober. <laughs> this is his rehab doctor. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's an unorthodox rehab plan, I'll say for yeah. sure. Now, they also found a small remnant of food that they discovered to be a Granny Smith apple. And the reason they figured it out was he swallowed the label on the single bite that was in his stomach. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah, obviously his, the cause of death is an act of accidental drug overdose um, due to multiple drug intoxication. Investigating his death, police found even more alarming number of prescriptions by someone named Dr. Nomi Frederick, who it turned out was being paid big bucks to prescribe drugs to the wealthy elite in Hollywood. This, along with Simpson's death, which is coming later, will lead to a major um, prescription drug ring bust in Hollywood that takes down a lot of this uh, stuff. Now, he fa- the person investigating this drug ring, he finds that Frederick, this doctor, had given one local businessman an estimated six-year supply of dexedrine in a six-month period. He found that this doctor um, had, and other area physicians had prescribed at least 15,000 medications to Don Simpson alone through a network of eight pharmacies and a, like a like a can't even count number of aliases. He also found that... Um, Frederick had been working together with this guy, Ammerman, and they had been writing prescriptions for his rehab clients. Uh, I mean, it's just like a crazy amount of drugs. There was like a Getty involved in this as well. I think a woman Getty, I don't remember her name. So it's like they were going to these very wealthy people and making a shit, shit ton of money. There were bills for this one three-week period with Don Simpson where he had spent twelve, almost $13,000 on drugs for just these three weeks. And it was estimated um, some months his expensive for prescription drugs were up to 75000 a month. So he's wow. taking a lot. Now, the death of Ammerman obviously terrified Simpson. The spotlight was really on him because a guy died in this famous uh, producer's house. He was determined to get straight after this, but it was the final straw for Jerry Bruckheimer. He was really frustrated with Simpson's drug use. And at this point, his work was declining as well. Like it was catching up with him. He told Don that he was terminating their partnership. Um, That was announced in December of 1995. The two agreed to finish their work on The Rock, which was already in production. But Simpson agreed to let Bruckheimer have Con Air, which he hated. Um, The Dr. Ammerman's son will later sue the Simpson estate for $53 million in a wrongful death civil suit. The lawsuit blames almost everyone in Hollywood, from Bruckheimer to Disney, anyone who lets Simpson get away with his behavior, but the case is thrown out because there's just uh, no evidence for that. In addition to rehab, um, he tries spiritual things. He goes to an ashram. At some point, he even tries Scientology, but spends thousands of dollars. And at some point, I guess they say he's more clear and he's like, but why am I still not happy? Uh, So he bails on that as well. In addition to 
drugs for recreational use. He also does legitimately have pain. Now, I mentioned he had had several plastic surgeries. One of them was a penile implant surgery that went wrong. What? And he had several painful surgeries to fix that, supposedly. And some of the drugs were prescribed for pain for that. But obviously, we know how that can get out of hand. Another surgery I've never heard of, um, he had gotten testosterone time-release capsules implanted into his ass to increase his sex drive. But at some point, the capsules leaked and went throughout his body. So he would, he would blame a lot of his rage on having this excess level of testosterone in his body. Oh. I have no... I, I've, I've never, never heard of I've that. I've never heard of it either. Uh, so that apparently was also fucking him up. Now... At this time, uh, his weight was back out of control. Like like many people who go through this, they can starve themselves for a while and then they will compulsively eat to excess when they kind of break that starvation diet. And he would eat like jars of peanut butter every night and he gained a lot of weight at the end of his life. But it could have also been bloatedness from alcohol and like who, he was in bad shape. But that was something friends noticed about him. Now, Bruckheimer believed ending the partnership would be that kind of tough love that would snapped on back into reality. Obviously, it's not his responsibility to get him out of it, but it had the opposite effect. And Don declined dramatically in the final months of 1995. He was still focused on the rock, but was barely there at all. He actually hires an assistant at this point to stay up with him all night to make sure he doesn't die. Now, In the beginning of January of 1996, he's barely leaving the house. He did leave mid-January to get a cut in color, and he scheduled several appointments for late January, which indicates he was trying to get his life back on track. Appointments were made for things like to meet a nutritionist, to get his teeth cleaned, and setting up appointments with his new accountant to get his finances kind of together. On January 18th, 1996, he has a three-hour phone call with director-writer James Toback uh, talking about the future, his plans to set up his own production company, and Toback says that he thinks Simpson seems pretty positive when they hang up. Now, Simpson did not go directly to bed after this phone call. He left his second-floor bedroom for his office on the first floor. He leaves a telephone message for his assistant. Sometime later, he goes into the bathroom wearing a bathrobe and reading glasses with a copy of James Reardon's just-published biography of Oliver Stone titled Stone, The Controversies, Excesses, and Exploits of a Radical Filmmaker. Simpson sits down on the toilet and dies. Sometime around one o'clock on the morning of January 19th, 1996, his heart stops beating. He falls to the bathroom floor, holding his glasses, and the biography is right beside him. Damn. Yeah. So obviously his maid comes in the next morning and finds him. This is a major news story. There's reactions from Hollywood. Eisner says, I've been waiting for this call for 20 years. Anthony Pelicano, who is a famous Hollywood PI, worked for Don Simpson a lot. He said, I thought he'd go out with more of a bang than that. Uh, His death was initially attributed to natural causes, but then there's that autopsy and toxicology report that determined he had died of heart failure caused by combined drug intoxication. Um, At the time of his death, there were 21 different drugs in his system, including cocaine, antidepressants, stimulants, sedatives, and tranquilizers. In August of 1996, investigative reporter Chuck Phillips of the Los Angeles Times revealed 
all the information I talked to you about that he had been receiving large quantities of prescription drugs from 15 different doctors and that police had found 2,200 prescription pills lined up in alphabetical order in his closet. Uh, And so began that case to bring down this prescription drug ring. Um, Now, the book I read by uh, Charles Fleming reported that his prescription drug expenses at the end of his life totaled totaled more than $75,000 a month, as I mentioned. He called Simpson a supercharged, simple-minded creature, an Aesop's Aesop's fable on crystal meth. Um, So in death, he no longer had the control over his image, and all of this stuff came out and he could no longer hide it. Um, In the book, it says, this was the end of the end. Simpson was dead. His personal habits and excesses were on display, and the physical details of his demise were a matter of public record. The legend, not the one he wanted, not the one he attempted to create, but the one his weaknesses, sexual predilections, and substance addictions created for him was struck. The rock was dedicated to his memory uh, and completed after he died. So that's his story. (laughs) that's damn but yeah you know what it's you never like you people often don't go out with a bang like people who are drug addicts yeah it's like a lot of time most of the time and i'm just talking from like friends i've buried and people i know that i've buried like it's not some big glamorous it, their bodies yeah. just give out, I think, a lot of times. Not only that, but it's like, look, it can be a very lonely, sad, pathetic death. And it's just tragic. Well, it's it's like whatever life he was living, it was going to catch up to him. The truth of it was going to catch up to him eventually. Yes. Like, this was a man who probably needed to go to therapy and deal with some kind of internal issues as well as his addiction and just never really worked on those things that a lot of people do to get better. Right. It's hard work. It's, it's hard, that's, that's the key is it's really hard work. And I think it didn't help that he was kind of getting away with it. I mean, yeah, he had a lot of enablers. Uh, but he himself was like successful. And I think that makes think people think it's okay. It's like, yeah, I drink a lot, but I have a big time job. I have a lot of, you know what I mean? It like makes them think it's okay. Right. uh, When it's still the same thing. And then like it, like in the story, it's like, it's only, you can only outrun it for so long. Right. Uh, It's going to catch up to you and things, people will start falling away when it gets bad enough. Like, right. um, So yeah, definitely a very crazy life. uh, Yeah. I mean, I didn't know a lot of that stuff. So wow, that was a lot. Yeah, I, th- you, I really recommend the book because I, I couldn't get to all of it. Yeah. It's a very interesting book if you're interested in film from 80s and 90s, which I am. Yeah. It's kind of my first period that I knew <laughs> personally, not just old stuff. Uh, and it's just all those movies. And it's yeah. just such a, I mean, besides him, like he's the extreme, but everyone was kind of living this excessive life during this period, I think. Yeah. Well, cool. All right. Well, we'll have some pics. Yeah, we'll post some pictures on our Instagram page, and we'll see you all on Friday. And the after show right now. And we're going to do the after show now. Okay. Okay, bye. bye. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 